Thank you for tuning in to this webinar, Best Practices for Plan Sponsors. This webinar is hosted by AGH University and presented by AGH Employer Solutions. AGH Employer Solutions is a team of professionals that helps employers, business owners, and human resource professionals hire, compensate, manage, engage, train, and retain one of their most critical resources, their talent. Today's speaker is Brad Bechtel. Brad leads the Employee Benefit Services Division, which serves clients nationwide. EBS is one of the region's largest providers of retirement plan record-keeping services for daily valuation plans and employee stock ownership plans. Brad's also well-versed in executive compensation planning involving non-qualified plans such as phantom stock plans, top hat plans, excess benefit plans, and other deferred compensation approaches. He served as a consultant to numerous Fortune 500 corporations in the area of investment management and fiduciary due diligence. This presentation will focus on best practices for qualified retirement plans in three general areas, best practices for an effective and healthy retirement plan, best practices to maintain your plan's qualified status, ensuring ongoing compliance with IRS and DOL rules and regulations, and best practices to manage and mitigate fiduciary liability for your organization. All right. Thank you very much, Mike. I do appreciate it. And uh, thank you all for joining us today. Um, as we go through the presentation today, we're going to cover uh, really th these four basic areas. I'm going to do a little bit of a history uh, of kind of, you know, where where did retirement plans get started and, and kind of what was that legislative journey, if you will, and how we got to where we're at today. Um, and then I'm going to pivot and we're going to talk about the role of the plan sponsor and how that role of the plan sponsor plays such a significant aspect in the overall uh, success or unfortunately maybe failure of, of how the retirement plan uh, runs and, and how it's perceived by the employees and their ability to become ready for retirement. Next, we'll pivot to really what I, I call, you know, kind of what makes a retirement plan great. And, and we're going to cover things like benchmarking and plan designs, talk a little bit about investments, uh, talk a little bit about fiduciary governance, um, pivot to education and, and financial wellness. And then last, we'll spend some time on, you know, okay, so I, I heard you, but how do I get help doing all of this and ways to get help? Learning objectives for today really are there are three primary ones. Uh, identify the best practices to be able to maintain an effective and healthy retirement plan for your employees. Second objective is to identify the best practices to ensure ongoing compliance with the governing codes, the IRS, Department of Labor, rules and regulations. And then lastly, identify the best practices to maintain and mitigate your fiduciary liability as an organization. So let's take a look at uh, kind of where we all got started. So back in uh, 1875, American Express uh, created the very first private defined pension plan. That uh, was the old, you know, kind of what we think about the old railroad kind of pension plan. You know, you work for a company for your whole life, and when you're done, they give you a, a monthly pension that you can live off of. And 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 during the, the course of the years, and and as and as time went by, most companies, um, certainly larger companies, had pension plans. They were very very popular. Well, come about 1921. Uh, Congress passed the Revenue Act, which established, you know, the, the concept of defined contribution plan. So before, back in the pension plan, that was a defined benefit. We defined the benefit you would get out of the retirement plan, uh, not how much we were putting in. So in 1921, with the Revenue Act, Congress said, let's create a different way of doing this. Let's define the amount we're putting in 
I don't know what the benefit will be, but let's define the amount going in. And that was the very first profit sharing plans that were ever created. Well, shortly after uh, the Great Depression, um, Congress said, wow, we need, a, we need a safety net here. And so they created Social Security in 1935 and around about 1940, the very first uh, pension checks, uh, Social Security pension checks were, were coming out. Um, interestingly enough today, with all the baby boomers retiring, there's about 10,000 baby boomers a day retiring. I, 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 that's a staggering number in my mind. Uh, 10,000 uh, workers starting to get you know, social security uh, a, a day right now. Now, one thing that's kind of interesting, you know, back in 1965 when they, or excuse me, 1935 when they created this, um, you know, workers were, you know, if you if you made it to age 65, you were only expected to live about another 13 years. So, you know, it takes you up to 78. Well, today's uh, life expectancy is is really, you know, 87, 88, depending upon gender. Uh, so we're living a lot longer, which has really caused Social Security to have to change a little bit. About 1974, pretty pretty big gap here. Uh, the Employee Retirement Income Securities Act was enacted, uh, or what we all refer to as ERISA. ERISA was probably the largest uh, single body of legislation that had been passed to date and, and probably continues to be. It significantly changed how we run retirement plans. It changed things like, you know, how you get into a plan and, and you know, your vesting and how long, you know, can you take distributions out and what that looks like and um, the amount of money you can put in. It changed a significant number of aspects of the, of the uh, both defined benefit and the defined contribution side. In 1978, uh, 401ks are born. Uh, we have the very first congressional enactment that allowed us to start making pre-tax contributions uh, into a 401k plan. So employees were able to elect and say, I want to put money into my plan. About 1996, they created what was called safe harbor features. Um, those of you familiar with kind of some of the conundrums that 401k plans have is oftentimes if your rank and file doesn't participate enough, you find that you're highly compensated or your owners uh, can't get enough money into the plan and they get refunds. Congress said, gosh, we need to figure a way to kind of get through that. And so they created things called safe harbor plan features, which allow em employers to put certain types of contributions, match and or profit sharing into the plan and allow the owners or highly compensated to maximize their benefits. In 2001, uh, you can kind of tell what's happening here. Baby boomers are kind of getting closer to retirement. Uh, you know, 2001, they create this thing called catch up, um, which really allowed individuals that were age 50 or older to actually make additional contributions over and above the limits uh, or the testing failures that may have been created. Uh, today, uh, retirement plans, you know, 401k plans can, uh, and if you're over 50, 50 or over, uh, you're able to put up to almost $26,000 uh, into a 401k plan. In 2006, uh, Roth deferrals were first introduced. Now, interestingly, Roth was not really adopted by most employers. And the reason was, is the legislation that went through at that point in time was a Budget Reconciliation Act. And it really said that, hey, this Roth thing that we created is only going to be around for about, you know, four years, five years. And so in 2010, it was set to sunset and go away. And most employers said, I'm not going to bother with that. That's not anything I'm interested in. In 2010, they decided maybe Roth was a good idea. 
and they allowed, uh, they removed the sunset and they've allowed it to continue. Today, Roth is, uh, is an extremely popular uh, aspect of most 401k plans. So where are we at today? Well, you know, unlike back in the in the old days where pensions were uh, super popular and everybody was in them, you know, today only 4% uh, of workers are actually in a pension plan. And, you know, the reason for that is they're just dreadfully expensive. Uh, and as we get older, they get more expensive uh, for employers. There's about $65 trillion in retirement plan assets. Sounds like a lot. Um, but 31 trillion is in 401k plans, about 580,000 plans in the U.S. Now, all of that sounds good and sounds like big numbers, but the problem is, is when we start looking at, all right, well, how effective are there? Let's let's kind of, you know, the sum of the parts. Let's let's look at the parts. Uh, individuals in their 40s, on average, have a balance of $38,000. Individuals in their 60s have an average balance of $287,000. Sixty-six percent of Americans who were surveyed said their spouse actually hadn't even really started saving anything, and nearly a quarter of workers that were 55 or greater said they've actually not saved anything. So this shift from the employer pension puts money away for their workers to this, I'm now responsible and I have to save for my own retirement plan, um, has, has some issues. There's some challenges. There are engagement issues. And what we want to talk today uh, about is, you know, looking at some ways that we can do some engagement. So let's start off with the uh, first polling question. Mike, you want to do that? Well, you know, I, I see the largest percentage there is to ensure compliance. And I think that's uh, I think that's a great idea. Um, you know, I've been doing this for a very, very long time now. Um, I, I, I had hair, it wasn't gray and, and it wasn't coming out my ears, it was on top of my head. So uh, back when I started, you know, what I learned is it's really not if a retirement plan has compliance problems, it's when a retirement plan has problems. Uh, you know, it's just the nature, it's a dreadfully complicated um, set of rules and they're constantly changing and businesses and employees and the dynamics of that are constantly changing. So. Uh, yeah, trying to ensure you're, you're compliant uh, is, is probably a, a great place to be. Uh, next off of that, trying to make sure that you're, you're managing your fiduciary liability is, is right there as well. So let's take a look at the role of plan sponsors and, and, and really kind of what can be done you know, by plan sponsors to really make their retirement plan the best it possibly can be. What I would say is first and foremost, we need to start with a, with a mindset change. Um, you know, I, 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 I've kind of stole um, uh, a quote here that uh, Matthew Nabisek said in his guide for plan sponsors. And he says, let's move from uh, if we build it, they will come to if not us, then who? And, and really what I mean by that, kind of that, that take off a of field of dreams, I mean, build it and they will come. I think there's a lot of, and historically, there's been a lot of plan sponsors that have created retirement plans. And it's like, well, if they want it, they're going to get into it. And if they don't, they don't. And, and I think that mindset has begun to change and, and maybe a bit more uh, parentalism has, has snuck in. I mean, we're beginning to realize that uh, financial wellness and making sure our employees uh, are doing well uh, improves efficiencies and engagement uh, at, at work. And, and the, you know, if not us, then who? Well, if, if we're not going to do it, then who's going to do it? I mean, um, 
So it, 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 it is something that I think plan sponsors need to have that engagement. Matthew had another quote that I really like. So rather than an attitude of neutral detachment, consider benign paternalism tilting in favor of retirement success. And I think he's spot on correct with that. So again, rather than uh, as, as HR managers, rather than saying, well, you know, we built it, it's there, come get it. It's we need to be driving people to it and, and, and making sure they're engaging. So how do we do that? Well, you know, it starts with just make sure we've got the right plan design and we've got the right features. And we're going to spend some time talking about that. Encourage participation. Make it a big thing. Um, I, I think by and large, most employers tend to make sure health insurance is, is, is uh, understood good and utilized, we need to be deriving that same type of engagement uh, and participation with retirement plans. A lot of plans these days have loan provisions or hardship provisions. I think there's a, a good place for those. I think they do make sense in some cases. Um, however, they do create leakage from the retirement plan. And that leakage, if it's a hardship, is usually not put back into the plan. And if it's a loan, sometimes it's not paid off. And that, in the end, is not always helping the employees get to their retirement readiness place. Uh, discouraging cash outs is kind of the last bullet point I have there. And that's just that, you know, I mean, we all have employees that have got a few thousand dollars and they're in their 20s and they leave and they go, oh, heck, I'm just going to take it and cash it out. Well, you know, I'm here to tell you that couple thousand dollars, if they rolled it over and they continued to keep it in the system and keep it invested, turns into a significantly larger piece of, uh, of, of an account value than just that 2000. But as soon as it goes out, it's gone. It's, it's depleted. No, actually, what I'm seeing is uh, really what I would have expected. Uh, you know, participant loans are a very popular aspect in you know, the vast majority of retirement plans. Um, so, no, that doesn't surprise me at all. I think the whole concept of uh, safe harbor, uh, and I'm guessing that probably more of the folks are leaning towards a safe harbor uh, type provisions and a profit sharing. Profit sharing is a little unusual, but we still do see it. Uh, the auto enrollment, I'm really encouraged to see that. Uh, I would have guessed that was maybe down a little lower, maybe, you know, 25 or 30 percent. Uh, the auto escalation at 13 also is not something that surprises me. We're going to talk a little bit about each one of these features and really how they can uh, lead your employees to that successful retirement. So um, as we kind of pivot now and sort of say, what makes a great retirement plan? Let's start talking about benchmarking and the different things that we can do as plan sponsors to make sure, you know, we've got the right kind of readiness measures. First and foremost, you know, work with your, your existing vendors. So, you know, know what your participation rate is uh, in, in your plan. How many employees are actively making contributions to your 401k? Maybe it's Roth or it's pre-tax, either one, but how many are actively involved in participating? Um, you know, if it's if it's below 75 or 80 percent, I think that needs to be driven up. What we find is that uh, in uh, office white collar type situations, we'll see that participation uh, 80 to 90 percent or higher. Um, uh, blue collar or labor or factory or something along those lines, uh, we'll see it a little lower. But but usually, I'm trying to keep it anything north of about 70 percent. How many of your employees are actually putting enough contributions in so that they're getting the full match? Um, I'm always surprised at, at how often people are, you know, not getting that that full match. You know, maybe you're doing that safe harbor match and, and they're not getting all of it. Um, that's really leaving money on the table. And 
being sure that they understand that they're doing that is 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 very very important. So know know how much match is being given out. Take a look at how many are deferring uh, ten percent or more. Um, a lot of financial advisors and financial planners will tell you that you know ten percent is kind of it's not it's not the perfect number, but it's kind of a magic number. It's a number that by and large, depending on how old you are, obviously older you're going to go higher, younger probably could go lower. But in that average, making sure people are putting in you know 10% or so, that's a really good number. What's the utilization of target dates uh, or uh, risk strategy, lifestyle strategy, uh, funds? We're going to spend some time talking about this and why this is so important. Um, you know, we don't want employees chasing returns. They become dissatisfied. They become disengaged. Um, you know, that's that's not a good strategy. So how many are using your target dates? How popular are there if you're using the life strategy funds? Roth contributions, um, as I mentioned earlier, are extremely popular right now. We're finding that I would probably say well over 65 to 75% of, of our clients, um, their employees are using the Roth actively. They do like it. Um, employer matching contributions, uh, again, very popular. Uh, I, I do find that many employers are using the match as an engagement tool. Uh, we'll talk here a few minutes about different ways that you can structure the match, maybe to um, encourage the employees to save more even. And, and we'll talk a little bit about that. I mentioned profit sharing contributions, you know, where that's available. We're certainly coming, coming out of a pretty tough economic time and Talking about profit sharing contributions right now is, is a bit tough. I, I think we'd all just hopefully have profits. Um, but uh, auto features, uh, auto enrollment uh, and auto increase. Uh, I saw the survey say that auto enroll is becoming very popular. This really addresses the issue of, um, you know, the, the nature of employees to be um, uh, procrastinators. Uh, I'll do it tomorrow. Um, I've always got something better I need to do today, and it tends to disengage that and get them into the plan. Um, I see that oftentimes starting out at 3%, uh, but we're starting to see those numbers go up. Uh, auto increases really addresses that very thing. So I think getting people started at 3% is a, is a great starting point. But by and large, most employees will not be able to retire and be ready for retirement in a, in a fashion that they want at 3%. It really needs to be driven up. Auto increases is a way that you can give your employees the ability to check a box and say, hey, every year I want my contribution to go up by 1%. I think what you'll find is the use of that um, is very popular. Now, the employees certainly have the ability to disengage, just like auto enrollment. I don't want to do it. I want to get out. I don't, I don't want it to go up. And that's fine. But again, just the behavioral finance nature of how employees think about their money, they're not, they typically are not going to be engaged to come down to payroll every year and raise it up 1%. You know, maybe it's a time when they're getting their salary increase or uh, rate increase. That's a good time to do it. So auto increases is a great way to drive values a little higher. So what's a good range? Well, I would certainly say, you know, moving from 3% up to 6% on an auto enrollment is a really good strategy. I, I realize that, you know, you know your employees better than we do and you know where they'll become disengaged. And so there's that point of how far do we push them before they disengage and you don't want them to disengage. Auto escalate, uh, same thing, you know, raise it up 1% every year until maybe you get up to that six or maybe even up to 10%. Probably one of the hardest things for employers to do, but it's 
highly effective is doing a re-enrollment. Um, I know all employers are busy. They've got their employees working hard. Uh, they don't want to take them out and go through a re-enrollment. However, one of the things that we're seeing employers start to do is do a re-enrollment using auto-enroll. And so they'll notify all employees that beginning on this date, everybody's going to get back into the plan. Everybody has the ability to opt out if they want. Uh, and what we're finding is that participation rates are going up significantly with employers that are doing that. Uh, it's a communication uh, uh, task that certainly has to be managed. Uh, we don't want your employees mad at you, but I think the outcome you tend to get is uh, more engagement from employees, more sitting back saying, oh, I probably should have done it anyway. They kind of took me off the hook. I, I, I got into it, so now I'm, I'm moving forward with my retirement plan. I told you I would show you uh, some strategies that you can use with your match. Um, certainly, if you have a safe harbor match, and that's, you know, it comes in a variety of shapes and sizes, but typically it's dollar for dollar up to three, 50%, or 50 cents on the dollar up to the next two, and then you can modify it slightly. Um, another, you know, if you're not using that safe harbor match, I'm giving you an example here of a 3% match. First one shows dollar for dollar up to three, that's 3%. But in this case, what we're doing is we're stretching that match over higher deferral rates. So if you will, we're really, rather than using the safe harbor match design, what we're really trying to do is get people to chase after the free money, the match. And so each of these examples that are demonstrated here are mathematical equivalents of each other. They're all 3%. Uh, our firm, for example, actually uses a similar match. We, we do 25 cents on the dollar over 10%. And what we find is that a lot of people get up to the 10% because they want free money. So let's shift here for a kind of a second or two and let's talk a little bit about uh, investments and benchmarking investments and what we need to do. So I, I certainly do recommend that you on, a, on an annual basis and, min and minimally on an annual basis, you monitor and evaluate um, how your investments are doing. And I really do recommend using a benchmarking tool. Uh, but these, these are very popular. There's a lot of them out there. Uh, they will compare, you know, your investments that you have to their peer groups, ones that are maybe actively managed just like them, or they'll compare them to to uh, bench, uh, index benchmarks. Uh, I would discourage you from just looking at your returns and saying, well, we got 15% you know, last year. That looks pretty good to me. Thumbs up, let's move forward. It's all relative. It's relative to peer groups. It's relative to benchmarks and indexes. So how did your funds perform relative to those indexes? I, I really do encourage you to um, you know, some people will say, well, I'm going to look at the 10-year number or the five-year number. I think you need to look at it in totality. You know, look at the, you know, what was the quarter today? The one, the three, the five. Longer term is better, but if you're struggling with a fund that's having some issues, certainly looking at that shorter term is a good idea because it'll tell you, is that manager adjusting? Are they moving back towards the market? Having investment policy is certainly a best practice. Uh, the Department of Labor, ironically, does not require that you have one. Uh, however, uh, and again, maybe this is the ironic part, is whenever they audit you, that's one of the first things on their list that they wanna ask you for. 
What the investment policy is going to do is help you formally document what it is that you're going to do when you review the investments, what you're going to look at, what's your process. Um, if you're going to put a fund on a watch list, if you're going to replace it, um, how often you're going to look at it. Those are the types of things that are in that investment policy statement. And I encourage you to have one. Should review it as well. Uh, utilized the default fund, so a number of years, uh, Congress gave us something called the Qualified Default Investment Alternative. Uh, prior to that, um, you know, we saw a lot of employers utilize uh, stable value funds or money markets. So if an employee did not designate their investments, that's where it went. So unfortunately, and I was, I was, um, I, I was a big proponent of the QDIAs and moving away because. What I saw was a lot of 20 and 30 year olds putting their money in stable value and money market. And I went, ah, they're not gonna have enough money when they retire. And I always saw the, the opposite side of the liability. I think a lot of employers said, man, I don't wanna put them in the stock market. What if it goes down, I'll get sued. Uh, I was the order of the opposite. I said, what if it doesn't grow? They're gonna sue you. That's really where the QDIAs uh, gave birth from. Uh, the, the whole idea was we need to be prudent about how we're investing. So looking at things like target dates, uh, funds that specifically target asset allocations based upon how old you are and, and the process of moving to your retirement age and dynamically rebalancing those portfolios in accordance with that targeted guide slope, uh, glide slope. Other options, uh, balanced funds or uh, life strategy funds or risk-based funds are funds that, again, I think work very well. They really, rather than targeting a date, they're simply saying, hey, are you more of a moderate, uh, conservative, an aggressive investor? And let's diversify your money accordingly based upon that. Make sure that your plan is well diversified, not just by the funds and the fund families, but also by the asset class representation. You know, make sure that you don't have just a whole plan full of large cap stocks. You know, have some large cap stocks, some uh, medium and small stocks, have some foreign uh, mutual funds, have, you know, mutual funds that are growth and blend and value, have a well diversified. Um, I'm going to mention here in a few minutes, though, but don't overdo it. Uh, there is a point of kind of diminishing marginal return where more is just less. And so there is a nice balance. And I'll mention that here in a few minutes. Lastly, you know, as you're looking at your investments, really make sure um, almost every mutual fund out there has got anywhere from five to seven share classes that are available. And share classes are just it's the same fund with different types of costs associated to it. Some of those costs might involve paying commissions to the broker. Some of them might involve paying revenue sharing to the record keeper. Um, really look at those and make sure you understand what goes into it and make sure you're utilizing the lowest share class cost you can of the funds that you've selected. As we look at really provider management measures. We're gonna look at two here, the record keeper and the investment advisor. And then in a few minutes, we'll, we'll take a look at your document provider as well as the auditor. Under the record keeper or TPA, your third party administrator, the person doing the, the testing and 5,500 compliance work for you, both on the investment advisor and on this one, you know, they, they start off exactly the same. It's, it's that, you know, benefit to cost ratio. What is the value you're getting out of the cost that you're paying? 
Um, you're going to hear me say this over and over again today. You know, paying the least is not what the Department of Labor says you need to do. Getting the best value for what you're paying and make sure they're commensurate with each other is what the Department of Labor wants to be sure that you're doing. And the only way of doing that is being sure that you're monitoring it and you're documenting it and you're demonstrating that you're getting the value that you believe is commensurate with that cost. On the TPA side, um, I have a bit of an attitude towards this one. Um, I, I really do believe that record keepers should charge headcount fees rather than an asset-based fee. Um, this, is, this has always kind of been an issue with me. Um, record keeping is really about statement production and you know working with the employees and that type of activity. Uh, you might have a custody fee that's involved uh, for holding the assets, uh, but it should be minimal. Uh, but I always had an issue with record keepers who charged 15 or 25 basis points um, of the assets rather than charging a headcount fee. If you have a 10 person plan with a million dollars and, you know, in the course of four or five years, that changes from the same 10 participants now to a $5 million plan. Well, you've had a five fold increase in your cost of record keeping, but they're still tracking the same, same 10 people. How did the cost of that go up? I, I, so I, I do, like I said, I have an attitude towards that. Um, make sure your TPA and your record keeper are working with you, consulting on plan features. You know, maybe that's those auto features that we talked about or the safe harbor features. Um, we're all going through document restatements right now. Make sure your record keeper's involved in that. Um, I know if you're having testing failures and refunds, those are things that can be fixed. Be sure that you're talking to them about different solutions that they can bring to the table that will help you. We all understand this is not necessarily your wheelhouse, it's ours. We understand things that can kind of get you there. There's also been a lot of new provisions that have rolled out over the last 10 years that you may not be aware of. Um, obviously, a record keeper, promptness, accuracy of reporting, it's kind of a given. Uh, flexibility of platforms. Um, I, this is another one of mine that's, that's kind of a, a big issue for me. I like flexibility. Uh, work with a provider that's going to be able to be flexible, that can utilize a lot of different investments uh, on the platform and doesn't pin you down to only the ones that show up in the book uh, or, or on their platform. <clears throat> Make sure you're doing annual feed and benchmarking services as well. On the investment advisor side, you know, your, your advisor needs to be sure that they're out meeting with you regularly, that they're providing you advice uh, on your investments, not just recommendations. Uh, recommendations are, I think these would be good ideas. You pick one. Um, I, I really do believe that the advice is important. If you're paying for something. This is their wheelhouse. This is where they've done uh, their career. <clears throat> Have them give you the advice. Have them meet with you regularly to do investment reviews and discussion. What's working in the plan? What's not working in the plan? Um, document, document, document those discussions. Um, when, <coughs> excuse me, should you get audited by the Department of Labor? The one of the things that they're going to ask you is, have you met, have you reviewed, have you documented? And I promise you, there's a, a, an attorney I work with, and, and he's famous for saying, you don't want to win that battle, show up with the thickest file. That's the person that wins that, because the Department of Labor knows if your file is thick and there's lots of notes in it, it's probably a lot of, you know, you're doing what you ought to be doing, and you're doing it well. Um, enrollment, education. Uh, we'll talk about this a little bit more, but you know, make sure that you, you've got somebody coming out and 
meeting with your employees. And, and right now it's been a little tough with, with COVID, but um, you know that doesn't mean you can't do virtual meetings. I know our office has done a lot of virtual meetings uh, with clients. So come out meet with them uh, and, and see what you can do to help them out and educate them and bring them into the plan and get them engaged. Uh, last one is focus on retirement readiness. At the end of the day, the only purpose of having a 401k plan, other than maybe as an employer, you get a deduction, is really to make sure your employees are ready to retire and they have the, the assets that will generate income to replace their paycheck. That, at the end of the day, that's it. That's, that's the reason you have the retirement plan. So making sure they have the money necessary to retire on is critical. On the document provider side, again, value for cost. Um, attorney versus record keeper uh, documents. I, I tend to be more in favor of the documents drafted by the attorneys. I think a couple of reasons there. One is the attorney will represent you legally. Uh, you have hired them, they will do it. Uh, second is should you leave that record keeper and you wanna go to another one, that document's yours, it moves with you, it's transportable, it's portable. Whereas if you're using the record keeper's document, it's generally theirs and you're gonna get a letter right after you you know, send them the termination letter and resign that says, okay, that's great, except we're not taking care of that document anymore and it's your job to take care of it and we're not sending you any more updates. Well, now you gotta go get a new document anyway. Why not have your own? Why not it be yours? Sometimes I'm asked about cost. What I will tell you is I have found that the cost is almost exactly the same. So the better benefit is the attorney direction. On the auditor side, <clears throat> independence, uh, obviously you've got to have the independence to be able to do the qualified plan audits. Audits are required for employers that have uh, typically 100 to 120 or more participants in the plan. Uh, you'll be required to have an audit. Qualification and number of audits per year. This is really big. So in uh, 19, excuse me, 2015, the Department of Labor did a study where they looked at, I think, 400 different qualified plan audits. And what they discovered was uh, CPA firms that uh, spent more time and had a significantly higher number of audit engagements that they did every year. Um, the, the quality of those audits was significantly higher. And that as you went down below, and I think the number was like 20, um, if you did less than 20 audits a year, uh, the number of deficiencies and failures in the audit went up significantly. So, um, you know, when you're looking for an auditor, um, it, it's fair. How many of these do you do a year? And, you know, if, if the answer is, you know, five or 10, I would suggest going on down the road and keep looking. If they come back and they say, well, we do 50 to 100, I, I think you're talking with somebody that's, that's likely going to do a very good job for you. Experience and tenure of the audit team, um, you know, make sure when you're interviewing them, uh, you're asking, so how long has this team been part of the qualified uh, audit group? Uh, what you don't want is to hire a CPA firm that uses that as the training ground for the new people showing up. Shifting over to fiduciary governance measures, and I want to talk about three basic areas, brokerage, advisory, and trustees. So brokerage um, is maybe the more traditional way we used to see the business. You'd work with a, uh, a broker uh, with maybe an investment advisor and investment broker dealer firm, and they would help you on your retirement plan. And the way that that broker was paid is they got commissions. So every time something was bought or sold, there was, there was commissions or transaction costs, uh, and that was how they were paid. 
the business has really significantly moved away from that. And part of it is, is the Department of Labor and the SEC has really looked at the whole fiduciary issue standpoint. The brokers have traditionally not been uh, fiduciaries and really they're looking at saying, you know, maybe they should be. And so uh, there's a lot of changes going on right now uh, at whether or not you know, the traditional brokerage non-fiduciary role is even something that should even exist anymore. On the advisory side, this is really where uh, the person you're working with becomes a fiduciary in the plan. And it might be either on what they refer to as a ERISA 321, which is a co-fiduciary. You're sharing the responsibilities uh, of the investments and the selections and the picks. Uh, or it might be what they call an ERISA 338 or full discretionary fiduciary on the investments. This is really where the fiduciary or that advisor is going to say, hey, we're picking the funds. We're going to tell you what they are. We'll put them in. If we think we need to take one out, we're going to take one out. So on the 338, employers typically don't have much input uh, on the funds that are going to be in the plan. The 321, they do have some input and they're kind of part of the overall team. On the trustees side, uh, typically, you know, what you see here is kind of three different roles. Uh, sometimes you'll see what's called a non-discretionary or directed trustee. A lot of custodians uh, find themselves in this. Uh, really, what they're doing is if, if the plan fiduciary says, hey, I need you to make a distribution, they're taking care of it. They're directed in that sense. What they're protecting from that fiduciary standpoint is making sure that money just isn't you know, removed from the plan uh, and sent back to the employer for a, a non-valid reason. So they are safe tracking and safekeeping the, the trust. Discretionary bank trustee uh, is, is typically holding the funds uh, and is the custody, custodial of the funds, but then they're also going to provide some of that oversight of the investments and picking that. Uh, and then that really takes you down into the full discretionary. It's kind of the, the full Monty, if you will, uh, really does everything. It's working on the investments, taking care of that, also holds the assets, is doing all of that. So when you're working uh, with these entities, one of the things that I, I really, really recommend and, and just absolutely would say, if I was you, I would, I would uh, mandate and that's fee transparencies. Uh, our industry has changed a lot over the years. Uh, used to be that fees, if certainly if it was in the old brokerage model, uh, employers had no clue what the uh, fund providers uh, and their service providers were making. Uh, today, uh, that's a good way to get yourself in, in a considerable amount of trouble. Uh, knowing what people are making, making sure that you get the disclosures. Uh, there's an annual disclosure that's required to be sent out to participants called the 408B2. Uh, there's also ongoing disclosures that are required to be sent out to plan sponsors called the 401A5 notices. Make sure you're getting those. If you're not, ask for them. Uh, it's, it, it's, it's nothing bad to ask for. Uh, I mentioned earlier that, you know, ERISA says that the fees need to be prudent, uh, reasonable, fair. Uh, they don't have to be the lowest cost. You don't have to go out and see, where can I get the cheapest retirement plan possible because then I won't get in trouble with the DOL. It's not what the DOL is saying. The DOL is saying, be an educated uh, consumer. Know what the value you're getting for the cost that you're paying. And a lot of times the only way you have of doing that is by doing comparisons. What are other people charging for these kind of services? Um, you know, maybe that's a benchmarking tool. What is the average in the industry? These are different ways you can get there. These need to be uh, assessed on a reasonable and equitable basis. I already talked about flat record keeping fees, not asset-based fees uh, on the record keeping side. 
Um, we do see asset-based fees on the investment and custody side. That does make sense. However, we are starting to see <coughs> we are starting to see uh, flat base uh, or flat fees uh, even on the uh, asset side. So that's uh, that's something we're starting to see even there. Uh, monitor the use of revenue sharing. So revenue sharing is a little bit of what I talked about. Some share classes uh, of mutual funds will have built-in fees that are then sent over to the record keeper or the investment advisor to help knock down their pricing. Um, you need to know what that is. Your participants are paying a slightly elevated cost of their mutual fund, uh, and, and you need to know what those are, and you need to know where they're going. So let's take a look at that. Here's an example. So we have two different funds. Uh, fund one is a passive, kind of an index type of fund, <clears throat> about $250,000 in that fund, expense ratio of about eight basis points, no revenue sharing in this. So 10 participants are using that. The second fund, however, is an actively managed, same $250,000, except this one charges 50 basis points, half of 1%. But it's got a built-in revenue sharing fee of about a quarter of a percent, so 25 basis points. Doing the math there, that says that there's about $625 of fees that the individuals, those 15, are paying for in that fund too. Now, here's the issue. There's inequities that are created by this. Um, if oftentimes that $625 will be used to go back and pay for plan-related expenses, maybe it's record-keeping expenses, maybe it's the advisory expense, maybe it's something within the plan. My point is, is the 15 individuals that are using fund two are effectively paying the fees for the people that are using fund one or those 10 employees. So the 10 employees, maybe we call them the educated ones, but they're certainly getting free rides. Uh, those 15 are paying for it. The Department of Labor is aware of this. They know this is happening in retirement plans. They're actively looking at it. Uh, they have not come out and said one way or the other that they think yeah, it needs to go away. They certainly are trying to have everybody disclose it at this point in time. Uh, I, I think this is an area, though, that I think you're going to see the Department of Labor take a more aggressive approach maybe in the next several years and, and possibly, you know, even limit this. So uh, my opinion there, nothing that I know of that's coming in particular, but I just, you know, working with the Department of Labor for as long as I have, uh, this, this seems to be a, another dot on a continuation of a line. Other things to do from, you know, fiduciary governance. You might want to consider uh, a committee charter. Now, committee charters uh, are, are not, you know, not real common right now, but it, it really is a way of formalizing your committee that's going to review the retirement plan on an ongoing basis. It's that board level of authorization to form that committee, and it also gives, you know, kind of the roles and responsibilities and the reporting of what that that uh, committee is going to do, who should be on it, maybe how many people. Um, have formal meetings, uh, have minutes to those meetings. Uh, you know, everybody sits down, we look at the reports, they look great, and you put them away, and put them in the dusty books, and then they're gone. Uh, but nobody remembers what it is you talked about. Problems will come up in, in the future regarding things that you're doing today. The more notes that you write today about what you liked, what you didn't like, the more you're gonna realize, you know, when you when you have to go back and look, again, it's that thick file, right? The DOL, you know, if, if you meet with the DOL, the thick file wins, the thin file loses. Um, have those minutes, have those documents. Formal review with your providers and their fees uh, annually. Do this annually, absolutely nothing less than annually. 
uh, fiduciary file. Um, I really recommend, and we'll talk a little bit about, uh, you know, documents that you need to maintain, but, you know, put this in the fiduciary file and maintain it there. Make sure you've got, and it can be electronic, it doesn't have to be all paper, but just make sure you can get back to it, you can find it. This is a bit of an older one, but we still see, you know, employers running into it. Make sure you're doing timely deposits of your deferrals and your loan payments. We still run into that every once in a while where somebody gets a loan payment or a uh, 401k uh, deferral in late, uh, and you've got to report that, and there's and there's penalties associated to it. One of the newer things that we're seeing is fiduciary training. So when you do form this committee and you get everybody on board, uh, it's a good time to kind of do some training. You know, why are we here? What are we supposed to be looking at? What makes a good fiduciary? The more educated you are, the more that you're able to understand what your role and your and your obligations are on that committee, the more effective and better you will be. Uh, getting fiduciary insurance, this is different than fidelity insurance. Uh, the IRA, or the, excuse me, the Department of Labor requires that you have a fidelity insurance policy that really takes cares of, uh, you know, errors and omissions, as well as theft of assets from kind of the ownership uh, and, and that trustee group. Fiduciary insurance, on the other hand, uh, really ensures you from a breach of fiduciary duty. Should you not do something that you're supposed to do and you get sued uh, as a fiduciary for breach, that fiduciary insurance will kick in. It's generally pretty inexpensive and, and most casually uh, insurers uh, have it. Um, I, I'm gonna pivot and talk a little bit more about investments here. I, I will tell you that Again, I tend to be more of a proponent of getting participants involved and getting them saving. Uh, I think historically, the impact uh, on investments has, has been overemphasized. I think, as I, as I think back even in my personal career, um, you know, 20 years ago, 30 years ago, we spent a lot of time talking about investments because they're kind of cool and they're sexy and we want to tell all about it. But, you know, the problem was, is we never got anybody actually interested in getting into the plan. So, uh, it, it was a lot to do over nothing. Um, I think we spend a lot more time today trying to get employees engaged and want to save than we spend time on the investments. The other side with the investments is they can be complicated and overwhelming to the lion's share uh, of your employee base. And so minimizing that complexity and simplifying it is another way to get people engaged. Uh, quantity of funds. I see plans that have 30, 40, 50, 60 investments, and you look at the census and they have 25 people. Um, that is way too much. Uh, University of Columbia did a study, it's probably been now six or seven years ago, but what they found is the sweet spot is really in that about 18 to 24 fund range. And uh, the reason for that was is more is just more, it's not better. Um, you know, there's really not even that many asset categories. You, you, there's not 60 asset categories. And, and it tends to get you to a point where, you know, maybe you're looking at the large cap growth fund and you've got 10 large cap growth funds. Why do you have 10 large cap growth funds? Um, you know, find the ones that make sense, own the fiduciary responsibility, hire that investment advisor to, to own that obligation uh, and present your employees with the best solutions, not the most solutions. Um, behavioral finance is a whole body uh, of kind of psychology that's really becoming uh, pretty popular these days. So behavioral finance really deals with how we behave and how we act related to our money. Um, and I mentioned a few of these earlier. 
uh, procrastination, uh, inertia. Uh, I'm more likely to continue to do what I'm doing, which is not doing anything, than I am to act. Um, so I'm going to procrastinate. Well, I don't get into the plan. Well, auto-enrollment takes care of that for me. Um, you know, I'm less likely to want to be, you know, go down to the HR department to tell them I don't want to be in the plan because they're going to hassle me a little bit about not being in the plan. And they're going to say, Brad, you're, you know, you're, 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 you're getting kind of long in the tooth. You better start saving. I don't want to have that discussion. So I'm just going to stay in the plan. That's behavioral finance. Um, the other behavioral part of behavioral finance, though, is how we work with our investments. Uh, individuals are typically twice as fearful of losses as they are uh, excited or joyful uh, about gains. And so making sure that we're doing the right things on an asset allocation is incredibly important for the long-term success for them. Um, I mentioned this earlier, overemphasis on filling style boxes. Morningstar has these style boxes, uh, large cap, small cap, uh, mid cap, growth value, uh, blend. Uh, I, I think you can overbake that. I don't know that you have to have a fund in every single one of those styles, and there's some good solutions um, uh, around that. Already mentioned this one, won't cover it. Uh, really use of the expense share classes. Make sure you're, you're, you're getting the lowest cost. So when we look at our population, what do we see? Well, my experience has been that about... 80 to 90 percent of your population is is lacks the time, the desire, the knowledge, the engagement to really sit down and understand investments. They're overwhelmed by it, um, and 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 they just they don't want to be part of it. So you know, utilizing a solution here for that the vast majority of your population is a good idea. And this is kind of where target dates, uh, as well as those lifestyle or those risk uh, type strategies, come into play. So, you know, there's, a, there's another group, um, we'll call it the do it with me crowd. That's about five to 10%. And, and what, what I find is they like to actually sit down with the advisor and they like to sit down and say, okay, here's how old I am and here's how much I've saved and here's where I wanna retire. And can you help me put together an investment strategy uh, from the selection of funds that we have? Uh, and maybe some of them are passive and some of them are active but that's right for me. And now I'm gonna meet with you on an ongoing basis. Cause by the way, this group always does meet with their investment advisors every year when they come out. And then they've got the do it myself crowd. Now the do it myself crowd may, you know, go ahead and pick the other mutual funds and, and get into the plan and take care of it. But we also find that about less than 5% of a population, these are usually your pretty sophisticated investors are looking for maybe a wider array of investments than your plan offers, maybe something beyond, again, that 18 to 24 funds that you offer. Um, Self-directed brokerage accounts uh, are a good solution for that. Uh, it does allow them to transfer money into a brokerage account, and then you know they can go out and buy individual stocks and bonds if they want or other types of mutual funds. They can kind of do their own thing, and it alleviates when they do this. It alleviates the liability to the employer. So, you know, if you got somebody that's just you know bound or determined to kind of go invest in, you know, some sector that's out there, Bitcoin or something like that, uh, gold or 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 you know, I don't know, pork bellies. I I don't know. Uh, you know, this allows them to do that without the liability coming back to you as an employer. So as we kind of put these three strategies together, the tier one again is, is that, if you will, the default, the one that most employees at 80 to 90% of your population are gonna use. Um, 
you know, take a look. There's a lot of different target dates and risk styles that are out there. Almost about every mutual fund company has them. Um, consider how they're performing. We find that some perform really well in up markets, but they don't do so well in down markets. Well, you know, if you remember back to 2008, that's one of the things that kind of occurred in 2008. I think 60 Minutes, in fact, did a story about it. And they said, you know, people went into the 2005 or the 2010 target date fund and, and they lost 30 and 40%. Well, that wasn't how those were supposed to work. And so back then, a lot of mutual fund companies really said, we've got to re-engineer these. We've got to do better. We need to be more protecting on the downside. And maybe we miss a little bit on the upside, but protecting that downside, again, remember, investors are twice as fearful of losses as they are joyful, if you will, or happy about upside. So make sure we're protecting the downside on these defaults, but get good returns. Uh, cost and value, certainly things you want to kind of look into that. Tier two, uh, 10 to 12, 10 to 15 different funds. Uh, consider capital preservation or a money market, some kind of a safe investment, but then also mix in with your bonds, um, you know, intermediate bond funds, maybe a high yield bond fund, those types of things. Uh, and then on the equity side, you know, large cap, small cap, uh, those types of, and, and certainly don't, don't forget uh, inter international type funds. Tier three, we talked already about that. One thing I will say on the self-directed brokerage account era, uh, area is, you know, you by by law, if you're going to allow an employee to set up a self-directed brokerage account, remember, you have to make that option available to all of your employees in the plan. Now, what you're going to find is they tend to be self-directed brokerage accounts tend to be more expensive. Um, you know, they might cost $350 to $500 a year to maintain them. So only so many employees in your organization are really going to go do that. But again, you have to make them available. So, you know, let's let's shift over to financial education and wellness. And the quintessential question that I, I think every employee asks, and I get this, I get this question all the time: Am I on track for my retirement, or should I be doing something else? Well, the best way to help your employees do that is again to focus on where are they at and where are they going, and what is you know what's that retirement income replacement? Now, one of the questions that we had earlier, I think at the beginning or the onset, was you know this question on the lifetime income uh, issue that's kind of coming up. So there's really two different aspects that are being looked at in the industry right now. So the government has really stated that they want uh, uh, participant statements to be to begin. And I think it starts at the end of next year, at the beginning of this next year. But they want retirement statements to include kind of a lifetime income assessment for all employees. And here's the point. What I find, and this is this is maybe the negative of a defined contribution plan. I find all too often that employees, you know, look at their statement and they go, wow, I've got $250,000. I've got more money than I've ever had. This is wonderful. Except when you then sit down and say, well, okay, but if you retire at 65 or 66 or 67 and you spread that over your lifetime and maybe that's age 87 or something like that, and, and you say, how long is that going to last? What you discover is that's not a lot of money. And, and I think this is the negative of defined contribution plans. And I do like what the government is saying is we need to try to help employees convert these account balances, which look pretty great, into really income projections, which may not look so great. And what that's gonna do is drive that uh, realization 
of, you know, where my savings and social security is versus what my needs are going to be. And I need to start saving more. I don't think they're necessarily uh, perfect, but, but I do think that this realization of what I have isn't enough needs to be driven harder to employees. There's also another thing that's going on in the industry, and what you're seeing is um, more and more retirement plans, and I think you know investment. Uh, the industry itself is looking for solutions to help employees have uh, lifetime income retirement uh, investment solutions. And and there's a lot. I won't go too far into that, but there's a lot of challenges logistically to make that happen. But everybody is looking at that. Uh, another way of making sure that your employees have, are successful is looking at one-on-one -on -one sit downs with your advisors. You know, maybe again, we're doing a lot of them um, virtually, but helping them, should we be doing pre-tax? Should I be doing Roth? Do I have outside investments? Maybe there's a spouse that wants to join in. I mean, I, my wife and I always joke, you know, I'm not living off of hers and she's not living off of my retirement. We're living off of our retirement. So bringing the two pieces together and working with an advisor that's willing to sit down and, and take a look at both and, and help you with those. Utilization of the technology, make sure that those of you that are working with, you know, you've got, again, participant statements, monthly income, online calculators and modeling tools and financial planning. You know, really financial wellness goes beyond just do I have enough money to retire? Do I have the right amount of life insurance? Uh, sometimes maybe I'm not able to save enough because I, I need to learn how to do a budget and, and I've got debt management issues. Um, maybe we've got kids and I need some help on college savings and I'm trying to balance that. Uh, or maybe I'm getting close to retirement. I'm trying to figure out what's, you know, when should I file for Social Security and how do I optimize that? So I've got about uh, five more minutes left of material. I do apologize. I'm going a little long and I do apologize for those of you that uh, have to leave. I understand and thank you very much. Uh, for those of you that can stay for the last five minutes, I will make sure. Uh, I've got my clock here in front of me. I'll make sure I stay on it. So, uh, minimizing your, uh, your 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 liability as an organization. You know, we've talked about a great many of these. Uh, select and monitor your service providers. Um, I get asked this all the time. Well, I mean, I hired them. I mean, well, if they do something wrong, it's their fault. Well, no, you hired them. I mean, at the end of the day, your role as a fiduciary, you certainly can delegate uh, certain tasks to your investment advisor or to your record keeper. And if they fail at those, you know, they're, they maybe they're financially responsible, but you as a plan sponsor, you hired them. It, you're still responsible for what goes on when you've hired them. So that selection process and monitoring process, do that on an annual basis. Make sure I'm not saying select a new provider every year, but monitor them uh, and, and then document it. Talked about the investments, select, monitor, diversify your investments. We've covered that. Follow the plan document. Uh, this sounds really simple, but you'd be surprised how often we find that plan sponsors aren't following their plan document. Um, and, and I think this comes about as a result of sometimes, you know, it's the owners that are involved in the initial drafting of the plan document with uh, the record keeper or the attorney, but the implementation is often taken care of maybe by the HR department. And, you know, maybe the HR department didn't even get a copy of that plan document, or maybe it got updated and they didn't even know. So make sure you're following the plan document and, and you're following all those rules. Verify expenses and the prudency of those expenses. Make sure that, again, they're equitable, they're appropriate. Um, make informed decisions and document your decisions. Um, you know, we've talked about that. Pre-retirement plan committee. 
um, you know, form a committee that has maybe two to four individuals. I don't want to, I, I really suggest not making it much smaller than that, nor much larger than that. Um, you want it to be an effective size. Uh, fiduciary training, we've talked about that. Investment policy statement, make sure you get that in place. Meet regularly, at least annually. If your plan's larger and you want, you know, meet, meet more frequently. I have some clients that we meet quarterly with. That's where they're, they're comfortable with. So what is a review meeting look like? What, I mean, how does that, how does that come about? Well, here's kind of an overview. I, I, you know, 60 minutes, right? So review the last minutes. What the heck did we talk about last time? And what changes did we made? And did, did they, you know, were they the right decisions? Did, did, it, did it pan out that we did the right thing? Did they actually happen? Did those changes come, come about? Um, you know, let's look at our investment policy statement again real quick. I mean, remember, that's, that's, the, that's the guidebook. That's supposed to tell us what we're supposed to be doing while we're doing this. Let's make sure we all understand the rules of the road. Review those investments. Spend about 20 minutes doing that. Look at the benchmarking, the fee benchmarking. How, how do we compare up? Are we more expensive, less expensive, about right? Where are we? Um, how are our providers doing? Spend a few minutes talking, you know, with the providers and amongst yourself. Are we, you know, are, are your providers, are they timely? Is the fees reasonable? Um, are you getting good contact? Are they coming out to see you? Are you getting education? All of the things that you need to have to have an effective retirement plan. And lastly, closing. Ten minutes, just discuss what are the next steps you're going to take. So what are the things that you really need to be sure that you're keeping? So in general, and I've got a list here, and I know we've made these available to you uh, through, the, through the PowerPoint online, um, but these are the things that you need to be keeping in your documents and documentation, and I usually say about six years. Don't go any less than that. Uh, statute of limitations for most retirement plans is about six years, so be sure you keep all of these. The one thing that I do suggest you may even want to consider keeping longer than that is this participant accounting reports. Uh, I, I promise you somebody's going to leave uh, and, and, you know, they're going to be gone and, and maybe those assets get forfeited or maybe they get sent uh, to, you know, to a, a, a rollover IRA. And, and 15 years from now, they're going to show back up on your doorstep because the Social Security Administration office said, oh, by the way, one time you had a balance with the XYZ Corporation, go call them and you're going to have to go find that. So uh, go back and find those and have those available for you. Getting help. Um, short and sweet here, but the bottom line is, as I said earlier, the, the, the Department of Labor and the IRS understand this is not your wheelhouse. This is not something you understand. It's probably not something you want to understand on an ongoing basis. That being said, you can get help. You can hire people. When you hire those individuals, make sure that, that they have some of these types of this language that we've been talking about today. Best practices looking at your plan and what's the best design for you, um, making sure that you know, they're working with you and your employees to make sure they're ready for retirement, not just you know, getting them into the plan and getting them into some funds, but are they gonna be ready for retirement? Are they saving enough to get there? Make sure they're helping you manage and mitigate your risks. Um, extensive experience with with qualified retirement plans. Um, I jokingly say this, but you know, there's there are a lot of providers out there that I refer to as two plan Tonys or five plan Franks. Um, you know, they've got a couple of plans, they've done a little bit of it. Um, I really would 
will tell you, be cautious with that. It's not to say that they won't do a good job for you, but they simply don't have the experience that they need to have uh, for all the things that go on within retirement plans. Make sure you're working with somebody that's doing a lot of these retirement plans. Uh, make sure they're, they're accepting some of the fiduciary risk. Make sure that you've got signed engagement agreements. Um, that's not a one or two page document. That needs to be a document that, you know, it might be seven or eight or nine or 10 pages long. Make sure that they are documenting. Lastly, quality references, transparent fees and quality references. So with that, again, I thank you all very much. Uh, this is really what we covered today and we went through and I appreciate y'all staying with me for an extra five minutes afterwards. I hope you all have a, a great rest of your week and an upcoming weekend. Take care.